Hello and welcome to Rocking Our Prize. Today I have a big question that is perplexing me. Can outsiders build peace in fragile and conflict-afflicted states? And how can they do that? Uh, to learn more, I am joined by an academic and former peace builder, uh, Susanna Campbell, who's an assistant professor at the School of International Service, American University. You know, the question that I ask in this book is, is in a highly dynamic changing context like Burundi, how do international interveners actually respond? Mm. How are they trying to contribute to their own peace building aims, whether those peace building aims are right or not? Yes, right? so this is the key thing for the listener. The book evaluates whether people use the outcomes of their activities to inform their practices. Mm -hmm. So whether you, you know, rather than just chucking balls in the air, whether you see if they go over the net or not. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. I am dummy dad. <laughs> <laughs> like, excellent. Exactly. So the book. And can I just yeah, say please. that that is a low bar, right? Yes, it is a very <laughs> low bar. Here's my analogy. Yeah. Like, does the ball go over the net? <laughs> like, it is crazy how output focused much of aid is. Well, that's it. Included, right? right. So the only way that this question even makes sense. Mm. Is if you is if you kind of understand how aid works in the mm, first place, mm, mm. right? Which is that all international aid is subject to the broken feedback of international aid, and what that means is that is that the the consumer of the aid has no voice in the process. Yes, right. Yes, that it's all about the producer producing the aid good. Yes. So it's all about you know I have a I have a project that's trying to actually disarm former combatants. Now, my success is measured not necessarily on whether these combatants are reintegrated into society. Mm. My success is measured on whether I spend the money, mm. whether I take away the arms, yeah. and whether... And the book you talk about, the burn rate, right? Exactly. Burning through the money. Exactly. Yeah. And that organizations, because, mm. you know, there's a lot of... In peace building, there's a lot of complex work happening. Yeah. And so, you know, organizations back home, like whether it's, you know... Congress in DC or, you know, the parliament in the UK use these kind of shortcuts to understand whether things are working or yes, not. Yes. And one big shortcut is, is the money being spent, mm. right? So that's the burn rate. And so essentially it's just bananas. It is, but it's the structure of the system. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Of all international aid. Right. So the question right. of the book is, does the ball go over the net? And some organizations look to whether the ball goes over the right. net and some don't. Right. Exactly. And why do some look and others don't? So the art, yeah. So the argument that I make in the book, and I don't really frame it this way about the ball going over the net, yeah, but I'm it sorry. is a no. It's a good way to think about it. The argument that I make in the book is that no organization is structured to look at whether the ball goes over the net, right? So no organization is structured to actually figure out whether they are achieving the type of change and transformation that they want to achieve in that society. That these organizations are structured to deliver aid, mm. to spend money, mm. to build things, mm. whether they're well-built mm. or not, mm. right? And so, and that is because they are accountable to actors outside of the country yes. who care about this burn rate, but also who don't have the capability to actually look and see whether things are working well or right. not. And because the recipients of the aid mm. have no voice, they can't actually tell mm. 
the decision makers. Yeah. Whether it's working or can not. I highlight, can mm-hmm. I segue to a parallel uh, mm-hmm. discussion in aid? So for a long time with the MDGs and beforehand, there's this focus in ensuring universal enrollment in education. Mm-hmm. So there was a big focus on building more schools. Mm-hmm. And everyone did that, and that was the big thing. You know, you focus on your output. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bit of a problem in that right. more kids were going to school but not necessarily learning. You know, in many it. contexts like Kenya, you had higher enrollment. Right but no improvement in literacy. And so you have these terribly, terribly low literacy rates because that wasn't one of the MDGs, the learning outcome. Right. Um, and because the international development community got hooked on this idea of just build schools and, you know, some people were highlighting... Pro- anyway, so just, yeah, so this is a broad general problem of focusing on outputs and not being attuned and sensitive right. to um, the outcomes. Anyway, back to peace building. And the focus on results doesn't yeah, sure. necessarily resolve that, right? Yeah, yeah, because you say, hey, we're achieving results. More kids right. are in school. Right. Boom, bite and, me. And so peace building ends up being your most difficult case, right? Really? Or one of the most difficult mm. cases, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to transform a society, oh, to take yeah. a society that was at war, yeah. in part due to ex- to exclusion yes. and who had access to goods and services and who didn't, mm. into one that can sustain a just peace, yeah. where all conflict is resolved nonviolently through mm. formal and informal institutions. Mm. Right? It's a hugely mm. ambitious in many ways, impossible Mm. agenda. And this is why we should actually expect failure, Mm. not success. And in some ways, this is an important part of the story in the Mm. book Mm. about how actually do these organizations succeed, even in terms of this very low bar of contributing to some type of change in the country level. And they do that because of of two different things. They do that because of what the creation of what I call informal local accountability, right? Which means they decide and they being staff within the country office, right? So a country office, say DFID is giving money to Kenya. DFID will establish Mm -hmm. a country office in Kenya to help to figure out who gets the money Mm -hmm. and to actually monitor and see where that money Mm -hmm. goes. Right. So what it means is that staff in the country office actually decide to give away some of their authority to a group of local actors. And by local, I mean domestic here. Mm. Right. To a group of local stakeholders and actors to hold them accountable for achieving their outcomes. Right. So it means that the international People working in this country office say, of course, we don't have the right solution. Of course, we're not going to be able to figure out exactly what's working, Mm -hmm. when, where, and how. And so we need to find some people who we can trust in this country who will represent a diversity of perspectives and actually tell us whether it's working or not and tell us what we need to do next. Yeah. So a couple of examples. One example is... um, The UN was supporting the reform of the SNR, the National Intelligence Service in Burundi, which was um, the kind of chief perpetrator of extrajudicial killings, so kind of chief torturer in the country. And this was a pretty risky project, and so the UN said, you know what, we really don't want to mess it up, and therefore we need to get some support. And what they did was they hired and contracted APRODH, which was the most respected human rights organization in the country, mm. which had antenna all over the country. Mm. They, con- they contracted APRODH to actually evaluate whether the project was going well mm. or not. Mm. And, and they conditioned further release of the funds on a positive evaluation by APRODH. 
In that sense, it was no longer the UN judging whether this really political tricky project was moving. It was actually a national human rights organization who could see whether the behavior was changing so how, or not. So what kinds of methods were they using to evaluate it? Like quantitative stuff no. or just their observations? Their observations. Their I interactions. Mean, they were already gathering tons of data about oh. the behavior of the National Intelligence Service. So this is so interesting because there have been lots of debates in aid about performance-based financing, mm-hmm. cash on delivery. So cash on delivery is the idea for listeners that... You know, you only say if you're worried that there's going to be corruption, you give them the money, you get them the second tranche of funding after there's been an improvement in literacy or after there's been a reduction in maternal mortality. And people have raised concerns that that can lead to gaming, gaming these quantitative indicators. Uh, So you've got two problems. One is the gaming. Two is that this might improve the infrastructure but not actually change the underlying politics. But here what you're offering is, or what the UN was doing, is a new model which is overcoming both of these issues because mm-hmm. you don't have so much gaming because it's based on right. people on the ground observing right. whether this you know, right. <laughs> military police is being authoritarian and oppressive. And secondly, you're building, rather than aid being top-down accountability to external actors, it's being used to strengthen that accountability process between state and society. That's exactly Which yeah. seems really nice, huh? Yeah, I mean, the question is, right, did this put Aplodeyash in harm's way, right? Mm-hmm. Did actually putting putting this human rights organization and this role of ensuring or of monitoring the accountability of the um, SNF lead to greater attacks to Aplodeyash? I mean, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't volunteer for volu- for um, monitoring a repressive state. Right. Like, I'll take right. that job. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Well, the thing is, Aplodeyash was already doing it, right? right? So the degree to which this actually Mm. increased their risk Mm. is debatable because they were already doing Mm. this. So to give me a second example of performance-based funding as judged by local actors. Right. So the other example is essentially actually another UN example. which is good because Ewan is often criticized for this. So the other Ewan example is where in a, something called the Cadre de Dialogue project, it mm. was a dialogue project among the different political parties. Mm. Um, and it was occurring because the parliament itself was not actually able to um, legislate because mm. there were too many differences of opinion between the different political parties. And mm. so they created this kind of dialogue forum outside to try to build relationships and enable some advancement in in the policy process. And the fast I mean this dialogue process was fascinating for multiple reasons. One is is that rather than kind of having a, a prescribed idea of what was going of what they needed to discuss, that they really tried to give authority over to the participants to determine what needed to be discussed. And one way that they did that was they actually created a participant-based monitoring group. So they took a representative group Mm. of stakeholders, of participants, so group that represented gender differences, ethnic differences, party Mm. differences, and they made them the monitoring group. But can can these local groups really, I mean, in a a repressive state, can you really speak out? Can you really say things? Well, this is the challenge, Alice. If we take, so in in the book I argue that essentially for organizations to achieve the lowest bar mm-hmm. of essentially learning in relation to their peace building mm-hmm. aims, which means they take regular action 
to reduce the gap between what they want to do mm-hmm. and what they're actually doing, mm-hmm. right? That's just basic learning. Mm-hmm. That in order for organizations to do that, they have to have some informal local accountability. Mm-hmm. They have to have some mechanism that gives them feedback about what's going on and not just extractive feedback, but invested feedback where people are actually saying, you know what, this is what's really going on. So part of it is just them providing the information. So whether you allow people to provide information. So whether you're just having an umpire who tells you whether it's gone over the net. Whether whether you allow people to provide you information that you listen to. Yes. Right? So And that you then uh, condition funding on the basis of. Or that you then, not necessarily condition funding that you then use to take action to improve what you're doing. So whether I watch whether it goes over the net and then change my serve. That's exactly it. Whether or not you change your serve, Mm -hmm. right? Whether or not you change your serve is Mm -hmm. the measure here and which is really interesting. So that's a super low bar. Yeah. And yet the ability, so for any kind of, you know, I did follow up research on this in Sudan, South Sudan, Nepal and Congo. And in Sudan, it was super clear that people were not able to actually work with a representative group of local stakeholders, that the government would not allow them to, right? So the UN, NGOs, bilateral donors, they weren't able to kind of build broad consultations Mm -hmm. with people who represented various kind of political perspectives in Sudan, either because they'd been chased out of the country, right, because of years of repression, Or, or because the government was monitoring so closely what they were doing that they couldn't even talk to them. So if informal local accountability is a condition for your most minimal level yes. of performance, yeah. then there are only certain types of contexts when you can actually create okay, that. Okay, but, so I can totally accept that, and I can totally buy that because I know that in a place where I work like Vietnam, that just wouldn't be possible. Exactly. But... Are you telling me that in all the cases where the where donors could get a representative voice of actors, a rep, sorry, I'm not even speaking English, a representative group of actors that they do? No. But why don't they? Because that seems bananas. Doesn't it? It is bananas. <laughs> I know, it is bananas. Bananas or bananas. Right? Oh yeah, right. right. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, why, 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 why did, okay, well, here's a question. Yeah. Why do some donors do this and others don't? So the only explanation that I have for that mm. is the will of people in that country office, mm. right? Mm. That the people who are working in the country office and, and more explicitly the kind of head of office mm. believes that this is important and is willing to take the risk to do this, is willing to spend his or her time, is willing to actually allocate the time of his or her staff Mm. to creating these relationships, these networks with local stakeholders. And this is something you highlight in the book, that there's actually lots of obstacles to doing that, because if you have lots of top-down accountability to your office in in New York or London, if you have all these reporting metrics, if you have all these guidance documents that you've got to do these form-filling thing, then you might not have the capacity to invest in that huge you might not take the leap right i mean the point is is these organizations are accountable to actors outside of the country Mm. or to Mm. the host government Mm. right so the un is accountable to the host government because the government of burundi is a is a member state of the united nations Mm. and therefore has authority over the united nations Mm. operating on its territory so many ways the kind of quote-unquote saviors of aid are actually individual staff within this within the country office who decide to empower local stakeholders in spite of the organization, mm. right? 
So, so what could aid organizations do to make it easy, easier for them to see whether the ball's going off the net? The first thing is that, is that people need to realize and the kind of heads of aid organizations need to realize that accountability to them does not equate with better performance at the country level. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's like, you know, some so donors need to recognize that just because they're asking for a ton of reports, isn't necessarily going to improve outcomes. Right. Asking for a ton of reports, asking for delivery of, of what they funded or oh, the burn rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Asking for the burn rate, asking. For... And that's the whole results of gender and age, exactly. right? So we exactly. want to see results uh, because, uh, and you know, that reflects domestic politics in the UK, right. the USA, exactly. that, in a context with the, the war on aid, right. in context of right-wing media saying, why are you giving money to Burundi right. when our children are, have got all sorts of problems? The politicians want to show, listen, we've reduced X number of deaths, we've got X number of kids in school. So that push for domestic accountability to, to some extent, protect and justify the aid budget. But that leads to cherry-picking of yeah. positive results. Yeah, I mean, sure. that's the point. Yeah. It also leads to funding the low-hanging fruit, yeah, the things yeah, that are yeah, easy yeah, to yeah. deliver. Like, peace-building is not easy. Yeah. This is super difficult work. Yes, yes. And what are you going to say, like, oh, I succeeded. I, you know, brought people to a table who wouldn't have brought, who wouldn't have come before, mm -hmm. right? Your successes are going to be very so. So, so you think that donors shouldn't ask for so many reports? Donors shouldn't ask for reports. Donors should realize that accountability should ta to taxpayers should actually mean better outcomes on the ground. But how do you know what those better outcomes are the ground up you for your local accountability? Well, I think you, you need to reduce your focus on spending money yes. and increase your focus on actually accompanying and supporting the money that you spend. But is there a risk that if donors remove the reins mm -hmm. that their country staff might do something bad, do something yes, terrible? Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, complete decentralization mm -hmm can have an effect of people being left on their own to figure it out with no support and possibly doing harm. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you want only top down, mm -hmm. you want kind of only centralized or only decentralized. People on the ground and in the country office actually need support, but they need support not in terms of, of pressuring them to write more reports. Yes. Right? Or spend money exactly in line with the kind of, with the budget or the time frame of the UK parliament. Mm -hmm. Right? They need support in the sense of, of hard discussions, right? You know, you're trying to actually integrate the military, the former Burundian military and the rebel groups. Mm. What strategies and tactics actually are out there to do that? Yeah. How do you deal with people, you know, spoilers who actually decide to, to, you know, launch mortars into so it's the, the guidance, the analysis, the dialogue, the dialogue, the supportive supervision rather the, than, exactly. rather than, you know, give me a report, the problem it. solving, it, right. Yeah, and yeah. the point and, and to not be afraid of failure because mm -hmm. the way that the system works right now mm -hmm. is everyone is so afraid of failure that anytime something doesn't work, it's just pushed under the rug. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and from an organizational theory perspective an organizational learning perspective, that actually discourages learning, that actually reduces performance. Learning results only from taking information on both success and failure mm -hmm. and saying, given this, yeah. you know, given that the ball went far away from the net, what exactly do I need to do to change my serve, right? So going back to this, do you, so you were saying that you get, there are many barriers 
to local accountability mm-hmm. in terms of the costs and the other mm-hmm. stuff that you've got going on. Is it just enough to reduce the costs, reduce the demands on these organisations and enable uh, local uh, problem solving and having those discussions? Is Could you also incentivize local accountability? Like, could you motivate your staff to do that? Or do you not think that would be an effective thing to do? Is it that staff on the ground already want to do it, but there are, there are time constraints? Or is it that some staff on the ground don't want to do it and you need to do extra things to get them to do it? I think we don't know mm-hmm. because nobody actually asks this question, mm-hmm. right? So there is very little tension paid to who staff are, what their training is, mm-hmm. what they know about the context, mm-hmm. what they know about any kind of dialogue mm-hmm. consultative mm-hmm. process, mm-hmm. right? And so... So I think the first question, the first task is to take stock of, you know, what do people actually know, Mm. right? And then, I mean, so here's my question. I do not know how much informal accountability can be incentivized through top-down accountability mechanisms. Because once you say, this is something you have to do, Mm. you have to find, you know, a group of, of local actors that actually represent the different perspectives in whatever institution you're working with, right? So you need to find people who represent the the different perspectives in the Burundian military and and talk to them. Yes. Right? So that once that becomes a checkbox yes. coming through this top-down yeah, accountability sure. mechanism, there's no guarantee no, that it'll actually sure. have the quality of what mm-hmm. you need. So if you're really going to change an organization, then what you want to do is figure out how to hire people who get this and how to give them training and support to actually do this difficult work. Right. So not necessarily incentives, but getting people who are intrinsically motivated and reducing the barriers to them doing what they already do. Right. But a lot of people like this flee these organizations because because it becomes stifling. Yeah. This is my conversation with Dan Hogan, right? Yeah, exactly. That if you treat people like, um, I don't know, number, if you treat people like cogs and you don't give them the autonomy, then all the great in creative sort of intrinsically motivated problem solvers leave. That's it. Okay. I have a question. So you've been with this book, this epic book, you've been given various talks Mm -hmm. to these various organizations. Mm -hmm. How do they respond to these ideas? People respond in general very well. It's interesting because the basic argument in the book about how accountability functions Mm -hmm. and why individual initiative by country office staff and sometimes rule breaking by country office staff is important Mm -hmm speaks to anyone who's been working for these organizations Mm -hmm. and anyone who works in them, right? So they see their system and I'm describing it. Mm -hmm. And the way that in the book, you know, the kind of the heroes of the book are individuals who make the organizations function Mm -hmm. in spite of themselves. So when I present this work to these individuals, they like it, right? You say, because I'm acknowledging their role, in making these organizations work. Yeah, that's a nice story. Right. I have a question. Yeah. Going back to the previous analysis, yeah. is it ever the case, like ever, mm-hmm. that an organization cedes accountability because of demands from local stakeholders? Like you were saying, it's because they've just had good managers who see who are enlightened managers. Is it ever the case that they see local control because you know people in Burundi say, hey? We, we have ideas, we have knowledge, we want to be a part of this process. That they seed, that they give away? Mm, mm. I think, well, so 
That's a very good question. I think that where yeah, go ahead. I mean, it may be possible that they never do because there's so, that, that because they have so much power that it's just a, their discretion as to whether to give it away. Oh, I think, and others don't yeah, question them. I think international actors question. actually have very little power, oh. right? Well, so over I, their own money, I mean, over, over their, their own, own money. Yeah, over their own money. So they have so much taken for granted. When I was working mm -hmm. for an NGO in in West Africa, you know, there was the taken for granted. As, it wasn't so much questioned that the NGO would be the one to decide how to use its money. Mm -hmm. Like people weren't really calling for the NGO to be accountable to them. Right. There weren't those strong bottom It was seen as a gift, a kindness. Oh, thank you so much. Rather than we're demand rather than strong demands for, well, how much money is this? How much of it is coming to us? What's going on here? So governments have oh, I keep talking, I've yeah. just gotta let the captain. Okay. Governments have unquestionably increased their demands for accountability, right? Right. This is part of the New Deal on peace building and state building. And in my research in Nepal, I saw this, that the governments were, um, were really trying to rein in and, you know, force donors to essentially be more transparent and to align with with the government's agenda, right? And this is also part of the aid effectiveness agenda of harmonization and alignment. So this has been around for a long time, but this is governments, not people. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in one of the cases in the book, the Burundi leadership training program responded to a demand from the Burundian military to actually provide a training, right? So that was in response to that was in response to a kind of opportunity to actually do something different and, and to respond to an opportunity to negotiate between the, the rebels and the military around the, um, the status of combatants. But that specific opportunity wasn't about local accountability and, and the BLTP wouldn't have had that opportunity if it had not in the first place had strong relationships and strong accountability relationships. civil society or community members or local government officials very rarely have the authority to, yes. to demand mm. that international actors be accountable to them, even if that aligns with a kind of broader idea between harmony behind the aid effectiveness agenda. I interrupted you. Now tell me, how do you, how do you, so you were saying that the organizations see themselves in this story and they appreciate yeah. it because they're the heroes of this story. Well, and they recognize that there are, people within their organizations doing well, trying to make a difference. Right, that the reason why a lot of people stay with international aid agencies or NGOs is because they see that they can make a difference. Yes. But they don't, 
make a difference because the organization is designed to make a difference. They make a difference yeah, because they spite, figure it out in spite yeah. of the organization. Mm -hmm. Right? So this takes their agency and yeah. what they do on a daily basis seriously. Everyone likes to blame the structure of the organization that right. they're working in, right? Right, exactly. Like academics included. Oh, Absolutely. I'm great, but right. the organization stops me from being as right. good as I could be. There you go. I mean, that's the universal story of mankind. Right. Okay, so, and then in terms of when you tell them how they might change in mm -hmm. various ways, how do they respond to those suggestions? able to spend smaller amounts of money and therefore watch where the money was going yeah. and in some cases actually create real informal mm. accountability mechanisms that so much of this Alice is about correcting a dysfunctional system yes. right so it's about reducing the potential that you do harm rather than saying like let's just send a bunch of international bureaucrats to eastern congo and have them go talk to local people all the time right I mean, that's clearly not the solution, yeah. but the point is, if you're spending money, you need to take accountability, not to anyone in Europe or North America seriously, you need to take accountability to local stakeholders seriously, period. Okay, so my big takeaways from this are, okay, let me try to crudely summarize your arguments. So, one, peace building can work, especially if there's local accountability and we're listening to people who can see whether the ball goes over the net. Right. At the moment, there are huge obstacles to even listening to those people because there's a bunch of other things you've got to do before you even start surfing, like people are asking what you're wearing, you know, how short is her skirt to go on a random tangent, right? Yeah, right. So people are asking how short is her skirt and I'm having to deal with all those questions like is it whatever make anyway so with all that business yeah we've got to reduce that we've got to enable so reduce the cost and and shift really from a shift from a metric of asking for reports to providing what my brother and I call supportive supervision, mm -hmm. you know, supporting people in the field to understand, to diagnose, to build those local networks. And going back to Severine's point is learning from local knowledge. And that's something when we also emphasizes that recognize, you know, issuing hubris mm -hmm. and understanding that the people best placed to work out are those on the ground. And we've just got to reduce the barriers to listening to them. We've got to reduce the barriers to listening to them and the ability to reconcile our kind of agenda and what their needs are. And sometimes that means that that international aid actors won't respond exactly to, they, to what the local stakeholders yes, want. But at least good. knowing what that is and making that decision mm -hmm. is a really important one rather than just ignoring it outright. Excellent. Susanna, thank you so much. Thank you, Alice. Appreciate it.